a conspiracy to murder, a hunger strike to guarantee the violent plot would be carried out, 40 assassins, and only a young boy to foil the plan. Today's study in Acts reads like an action-packed thriller. Unlike most TV dramas, however, this account reveals the truth about how God can use little people to accomplish great things. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, and discover how God powerfully used the right decision of a young man. What are some situations in the Bible where God has specially used a child? Good, that servant girl in Naaman. Remember, she was a nameless servant girl taken captive, and yet she told the great Syrian general of a prophet down in Israel that would be able to meet his leprosy and be able to challenge it and, and heal it. Jesus himself was a child teaching the temple as a 12-year-old, listening to the great doctors and amazing them with the comments and the teaching that he was able to give. Good. Some others. little boy just took his lunch and the Lord broke it and multiplied it. David and Goliath, that's one of the most obvious ones that we would almost forget. David was just a boy when he slew Goliath. What I'm trying to help you to begin to think about is I think that in our modern society where we're used to watching the, a real skillful pro like Everything from baseball, watching the World Series, you watch people that are bigger than life. They play ball better than you. They run faster than you. We tend to look at great political events, and TV blows even real-life political people into a bigger-than-life kind of a situation, the way that we look at them. And then all the, the shows on TV, you're constantly dealing with masters of the universe and Superman and super this and super that. And what it can do to many of us is to lull us into the idea that God only uses the big people. In fact, in America today, there's many believers that think God only uses the big superstar, you know, the big superstar preacher and the big superstar evangelist. And if it's really big, then God's hand is really in it. But if it's little, God's hand really isn't in that. Well, the tragedy of that kind of thinking is that it begins to cause us little people not to do the little things that are absolutely necessary in order to keep God's family healthy and strong and reaching out to an unbelieving world. We want to look today at Acts chapter 23, and I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 23, and I truly hope that our studies together on Sunday morning are just a stimulus for you to open up your Bible repeatedly during the week, because the more that I learn about the Lord Jesus, the more I realize that the only genuine truth source for you to know about Christ is through His Holy Word. And though I'm amazed at how much lip service that we give to the Word of God many times in church, I think that if we're really honest, that there's, there's a great need for us to study the Word of God carefully on our own. And it's almost so trite, but it's so true that unless we're studying the Word of God on a daily basis, unless you're opening up this precious book and beginning to read it for yourself and asking the Holy Spirit to teach you, you're not going to be healthy spiritually. And so I pray that as we study together on Sunday morning that it will be just kind of an object lesson of what you can do on your own and the things you can learn and the insights that you can gain. And I would pray that we would just whet your appetite, that the Holy Spirit would speak to your heart but I trust that it would whet your appetite for the meals that you can have for your own as you study on your own, possibly before you go to work. One of the men mentioned to me last night, he said, you know, it's really hard, but I've started to get up a half an hour early 
and I'm studying the Word of God. And it was just the greatest thing I could ever hear. And you can hear the Holy Spirit's voice in every single word of Scripture. And I hope that you're listening to the voice of God in the Scripture on your own during the week. In verses 12 through 15 of Acts chapter 23, we pick up the story again after the Apostle Paul spent a night in jail. And I want you to look at verse 11 because it sets the stage for what we're going to learn in our passage. Verse 11 says, The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and they bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot and they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. The first group of people that were introduced to are a group of assassins, 40 assassins. And you know, we tend to think that when a tragic situation like a cripple being shot and thrown out of his wheelchair into the Mediterranean Sea. As Americans, we're just horrified by that, and rightly so. We should be horrified by it. But something that concerns me is I hear an awful lot of talk with, how can people ever be like that? How can people be so cruel? And there's a great surprise about the cruelty and the violence of man. And a lot of Americans have the idea, you know, that takes place over there. But the reality is that this kind of violence and this kind of cruelty is taking place all around us. It's in the world. One of the things that Western man has a very hard time understanding is how cruel and how violent the human heart is. And it's not out there. It's in here. You'll often have people saying, boy, we just need to go back to the good old days. We need to go back into the situation before there was this kind of guerrilla warfare, before there was terrorism, before there was this kind of murderous violence. Brothers and sisters, the book of Ecclesiastes says it's not wise to talk about the good old days. And something that God's Word will help you to learn is to be realistic about mankind. The Word of God, contrary to what many people think, is the book that will give you an insight real truthful discernment into what the human heart is actually like. What I want you to realize, this story took place 2,000 years ago. And yet you had 40 Near Eastern fanatical religionists that were assassins. They hated the Apostle Paul so much. Why did they hate him? For one fundamental reason. He taught the resurrection from the dead in Jesus Christ. Paul believed with all of his heart that Christ had genuinely rose again from the dead and he was unashamed of it. He would go everywhere talking about the fact I genuinely believe that Christ is alive. That's what he was on trial for. These religious fanatics couldn't stand the challenge to their power. They couldn't stand the challenge to some of their traditions, some of the things that they had held dear for many, many years. And when you start to push the button against people's security, against what they're trying to hang on to, 
You've got tremendous forces of violence. Brothers and sisters, it's not just something new in the modern world. It's something that's going to go on, and it has been going on, and it will go on until Jesus Christ comes back. And what you all need to realize, and what I need to realize, is that we have the only lasting, legitimate answer. The only real answer to these 40 fanatics is for them to be given a new heart. You see, they're giving in to their violence and their hatred. And the only answer for them would be for them to accept the message that Paul was giving. Only Christ can come into a life and take an assassin and make him a child of God. So the first group is this group of 40 assassins that want to kill the Apostle Paul. The next group I want you to think about a little bit is the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin. Notice it says in verse 15 that they went to the Sanhedrin and they, and in verse 14, they went to the chief priests and the elders. They went to the leaders of the Sanhedrin. And this is the group that we were exposed to a little bit last week in the person of Ananias. And I want to remind you again, these are the religious people without God. These are the religious professionals that don't really believe in the revelation of God. They do not believe in Jesus. They do not believe that he rose again from the dead. And something that I want to really warn you about is that religion without Christ is deadly. Religion without the truth as found in Jesus becomes one of the most murderous, one of the most powerful and prideful and cunning and deceitful forces on the earth. Now in the Western world, we have the idea if it's religion, it's good. All religions are Islamic, Hindu, Whatever it is, Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, whatever it is, if it's religion, it speaks to the higher view of man. If it does not have Christ at its center, the scripture will say it's part of a system of falsehood. Not that there's not any truth in it. Not there aren't some facts and some insight. Because God in his general revelation has revealed many things about himself that men can learn from just observing nature. But a religion without Christ fundamentally, at its core, will become very deceitful and very evil. And it will be manned, it will have leaders in it that are really in it for their pride and for their power and for their prestige. And if you don't think that's true, you need to listen very carefully what the book of Acts is saying. These brigands, these 40 assassins, went to the priests of the first century the religionists, the doctors of theology. And they said, listen, it won't be any water off your back. You won't have to dirty your noses at all. All you need to do is invite the Roman commander to bring Paul down here to come from the Fortress Antonio, which is in the northeast corner of the temple, bring him down to the southeast corner, and we'll make sure he never makes it through the narrow streets of Jerusalem. We'll knife him before he gets there. These religionists were perfectly willing to allow an innocent man to be killed because he was challenging their authority. They were jealous of his popularity. The same dynamics that led to the crucifixion of Christ were going to lead to the assassination of Paul. The book of Acts is talking about your life and my life and the world that we live in because you're going to run into these kind of people as you go out into life and so am I. 
You're going to meet religionists that look great on the outside, are able to lead beautiful services, really, you know, just say all the right things. But the reality of their heart is they reject the biblical revelation. They do not accept the fact that miracles could take place. They do not believe that Christ rose again from the dead. They really are anti-God. But they're all in the guise of nice religionists. And they'll be willing to even sanction the murder of an innocent man. It'll happen in our society today. You'll also meet the fanatical assassin who believes he needs to take things into his own hands. He needs to go ahead and kill and destroy. And there's tremendous forces in our world today that are at work along those lines. The only hope is for violence and massive rebellion. And they'll be like these 40. In fact, it was 40 like this in just a few years, about 10 years after this event took place, that rose up against the Roman Empire. So those are the two groups. Now I want to introduce you to a different group. I want to introduce you to a young boy. In verse 16, it said, But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, and I want to stop right there. What I want you to do is I want you to understand what happened. Plots have a way of leaking out. Have you noticed how hard it is to keep a secret? How many of you have ever had a secret that leaked out? Somebody found out about it and it just didn't last. The same thing took place back here. These 40 men that had taken this vow that they were not going to eat or drink until they killed Paul, somehow the plot leaked out. Somehow Paul's nephew, just a young boy, found out about it. Now, one of the choices he faced was to find Paul. And was that a good choice? Yeah. What would happen to Paul's nephew if the 40 assassins found out that he had gone to his uncle Paul and told him about this? They would have assassinated him. So what was Paul's nephew faced with? If he goes to his uncle, he might get... It's kind of like being on the streets in New York or Philadelphia. And if you deceive a gang, you're taking your life into your hands. You never know. Kids face that kind of decision a lot. I've worked with kids at Word of Life in upstate New York that will tell you about facing situations like this. If Paul's nephew wants to save his own skin, he wants to protect himself, then what's the wise thing to do? Just button your lip and not say anything. You see, Paul's nephew is one of those little people. We don't even know his name. He just appears on the page of the Scripture for a few lines. But he's one of those little people that in a moment of crisis, and I believe that every one of us as we go through life have certain moments where what we really are, what we genuinely are, not what we talk about, not what we preach, not what other people think we are, but what we really are down deep in our heart becomes exposed. It's in the moment when you hear about a plot that could destroy your uncle that without thinking for a minute, it says, but when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Now that's courage. It's a little nameless boy that made the right decision that could have even cost him his life but it was the right decision. It was truthful. It was loving. It would protect his uncle. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He had something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. So Paul's little nephew found himself very quickly ushered into the Roman commander's 
headquarters. The commander took the young man by the hand. That's why I think he must have been a little boy, because you don't exactly go up to a six-foot-two-inch teenager and say, come on with me, little boy, and take him by the hand. You know, he might punch you out. So the Roman commander, evidently the nephew was just a young boy, took him by the hand and drew him aside and asked, what is it that you have to tell me? And Paul's nephew replied, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting an ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported to me. And I want you to see there was great danger. Even the Roman commander realized there was great danger if Paul's nephew was exposed. So he told him, don't tell anybody about these events. I want you to remember Paul's nephew, the nameless little boy that acted with great courage the next time that you're tempted to say, what can I do? What contribution can I make? I don't really have a part to play. It doesn't really make any difference if I tell the truth. It doesn't make any difference if I expose an evil plot. It doesn't really make any difference if I teach Sunday school. If I obey in Sunday school, if I go to Awana, if I tell my friends about Christ, what can little old me do? I want you to remember Paul's nephew. Who was Paul? Paul was the greatest apostle in the first century world. He was the one man that God used more than any other man in the first century world to bring the gospel to people that had never heard it. And God has his apostle, though in jail, God has him on the way to Rome to have one of the greatest opportunities for outreach. He is going to reach a testimony to Nero himself. And then he's probably going to be released. It's a little bit difficult to know for sure whether he was released. But I believe Paul was released from this imprisonment, ministered for another four years as far as Spain, and then came back and was arrested again. But God is still going to use Paul. And I want to ask you something. Was there any possibility at all that the assassins could kill Paul in the sovereign plan of God? Based upon what we've studied together this morning, was there any chance at all that the assassins could kill Paul? Remember the first verse I read? Remember verse 11? The Lord Jesus himself appeared to Paul and said, you're going to be a might witness in Rome. So the sovereign plan of God, and this is one of the times where Paul had the opportunity of knowing exactly what the decreed will of God was. The decreed will of God was, you're going to go and preach for me in Rome. So that eliminates any responsibility. Paul's nephew didn't have to do anything, did he? It wasn't dependent upon him, so he could have gone home when he found out about the plot. He could have gone home, watched television, had a coke, said, you know, the Lord will take care of it. It's okay. Everything will work out. God's working his sovereign plan. I can do nothing. Is that true? No. This passage reveals something very important about God's will. Yes, God knows. Yes, God is in control. Yes, Paul would witness for him in Rome. But God's circle of his will included the courage, the activity, someone who got off their dust and took, even though they took a great risk, they did the right thing, they did the truthful thing, they did the loving thing, and they went to the right people at the right time because this little boy was part of God's sovereign plan to fulfill what his son had told Paul 
that he would be a witness in Rome. You know, that's always the way God's family works. As I look around this room, God has young people, he has small babies, he has teenagers, he has college students, he has adults. And God has a plan which includes every single one of us in the body. One of the things that's the most exciting thing to me in our church family is that I believe that the Holy Spirit is starting to generate a tremendous sense that every one of you can participate. And I see a lot of you doing a lot of little things from digging ditches to put a fence up, putting tile down, doing mechanical things, helping to teach classes, starting new Bible studies, reaching out to unbelieving neighbors. The church family is starting to really get the hold of the idea we can do the little things. I found it the last several weeks. When I go to the hospital, I bump in. Somebody else has already been there. A lot of little people doing the little things that ultimately in the plan of God turn out to be really big things. And whenever you're tempted, because I'm tempted to think, what can I do? What contribution do I make? What difference does it make what I do? Anybody ever feel like that? We all do. It's one of Satan's biggest biggest lie. Because you see, God is just asking us to do what we can do. To do just little things. Not to do the great big thing. You see, Satan tries to get you to look at some impossible thing that you couldn't do in a million years. And he gets you to say, well, man, I could never do that, so I can't do anything. When there's something right there next to you that you could do, and Satan will get your eyes on what you can't do, so you don't do what you can do. The only way to get the task done is to do what you can do. And in the moments of crisis, to do the thing that's loving, to do the thing that will even risk your life. And there's been lots of little people down through church history, like Paul's nephew, who don't have any needs. They're not the great Apostle Paul. They're not the great Apostle Peter. But the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter could not have ministered unless there was a little nephew who on the streets of Jerusalem, when they over, overheard a plot, did the brave thing, did the right thing, did the thing that would protect someone that he loved. Now I want you to look at another fellow in this group. It's Lysias the commander. Because there's a little bit of humor in this letter, and I'd like to read this letter, and then we'll discuss. The final point we'll make is having to do with this letter. And I want you to look at it in verse 26. This is the personal letter that Claudius Lysias wrote. He was the Roman commander that Paul's nephew went to as he got 70 of his cavalry, 200 of his, of his, of his legionnaires, 200 uh, foot soldiers, and possibly 200 spearmen ready to go to Caesarea. You see, when Paul's nephew exposed the plot, Lysias realized that Paul's life was in danger. He mobilized half of his garrison, got them ready to go by 9 o'clock that night. But before they could leave, Lysias had to write a note, a letter, an official statement, which would tell Felix, his governor, 70 miles to the east on the seacoast of the Mediterranean at Caesarea, why in the world he sent this short little Jew over to Caesarea for a trial. And so this is the letter he wrote. Now you listen, and you tell me what you think about the letter. Tell me what you observe about this letter. Claudius Lysias, that's the name of the Roman commander. In Roman letters and also in Greek letters, instead of writing 
Uh, you screw the year to the end of the letter. You start out with your name. It's really a smarter way because then you don't have to flip through a couple pages to find out who sent you the letter. And so it, a Greek or Roman letter begins with a person that's writing the letter. Claudius Lysias. Then you write who, it's, who you're writing to. To His Excellency, Governor Felix. Now, up to now, that's a typical normal letter. That's the way you'd write um, a letter to a, a higher official. His Excellency would be just the normal word that would be used for Governor Felix. Greetings. Now, here we go with his letter. This man was seized by the Jews. They were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and I rescued him. For I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions of a plot to be carried out against the man. I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. What do you notice about that letter? Randy, he's lying. How is he lying? Okay, he said that he did everything. And the specific lie was, if you read that letter, recreate the situation according to this letter. Now, for those of you that have been able to be with us the last several weeks, will have to help us with that. A lot of you have been. If you were to recreate the situation of Paul based upon this letter, when the riot took place in the temple, how would you reconstruct it? The letter implies the Jews are tearing apart Paul. Now, that part was accurate, okay? It also implies that Lysias comes crashing down the fortress Antonio, down the steps with his legionnaires. Why? Why did he come? According to the letter. To save a... No, not to save a Jew. A Roman, that's right, to save a Roman. In other words, he's the gallant soldier that comes down to save a loyal subject of the empire. Now you tell me, was that the truth? How did Lysias find out that Paul was a Roman citizen? Did he find out while Paul was being beat up by the mob? Did he find out when Paul was preaching on the steps of the fortress Antonio? How did Paul find out? The Romans were going to flagellate him. They were going to just about kill him. And Paul says to the centurion, not to Lysias, he says to one of the soldiers underneath Lysias that was about ready to flagellate Paul, which could have killed him. Paul said, hey, is this legal? The centurion said, what are you talking about? Is it legal? And Paul said, well, I'm a Roman citizen. And with that, the centurion just about dropped his teeth and Lysias' head could have rolled. He could have lost his command and everything else. Does he tell Felix, his governor in Caesarea, that? No. Now, what I want you to understand, and you say, well, what does this all have to do with us? You work with people like that every day. You know, we all come piously to church. It's a big thing to do down here. But Monday morning comes around, and this letter becomes a way of life. And sometimes as a believer, you get very discouraged about it. You know, in other words, you deal with Lysias' like this. I want you to understand something about Lysias. He was a nice, secular guy. He took his Paul's nephew by the hand. He was very kind to Paul's nephew. He protected Paul's nephew's life. He said, don't tell anybody about it. This guy isn't all bad. But he's a typical secular Roman. He's a typical secular man. You work with him in industry. You work with him in your company. You work with her now in your company quite a bit, okay? And what I want you to understand is that the Word of God that we're studying on Sunday morning can give you insight into people like that, can help you to realize that 
you're not the only one that ever faced people like this. You're not the only one that had to work with people like this. That God's word is not caught by surprise about people like this. What is Lysias doing? He's brown-nosing. That's what he's doing. He's buttering up his commander. And he's doing it by lying. He didn't tell him, I have something to confess to you. I almost beat up a Roman citizen. He doesn't tell the truth. In this letter, he puts himself in the most favorable light. Just the way we can do. If we think that that's the way to go up in this sector of the world. Now what I want you to understand about this is, if you're in love with God, and if you're living for the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus is even ultimately using that kind of a boss or that kind of a political official, or that kind of a general, or that kind of a captain. See, what I want you to understand is that this story is weaving all the details together. And one thing Lysias said was true, which was the message that God wanted to have communicated, is there was nothing that Paul had done that made him worthy of death. In the book of Acts, every Roman leader that Paul stands before The Roman leader says he's not guilty. Before Galileo in Ephesus, and now before Lysias in Rome, Paul hasn't done anything wrong. Now that's the kind of the people that we need to be. You see, in the midst of a lying, prideful, climb up the ladder, deceive, make myself look good, write reports that are glowing, do everything I can to get ahead. In the midst of that world as believers, we need to be men and women like Paul and like his little nephew. Men and women that tell the truth. Men and women that have integrity. Men and women that won't take bribes because this story is going to get even more realistic. We're going to have several Roman officials that want to get bribed. And you know, we come to church and go, boy, that never happens in our world. Oh, yes, it does. The good chance you could be bribed this week. There's a good chance you could be challenged to lie a little bit. There's a good chance you could want to make yourself look a little bit better than you really are by twisting the truth. The world that Paul was living in is our world. It's where we live. And as children of God, unlike the Jewish priests, and they could have been Protestant priests. It's not anti-Semitic. The Jewish priests were just like every other professional religionist. They were full of themselves and pride. Unlike the 40 assassins, unlike Lysias, that was the secular man climbing up the ladder, we need to be like Paul. Men and women of truth, believing in the resurrection, not ashamed to tell people about it, not ashamed to go public and say, I really do believe. The story of Jesus isn't just a story to me. I really believe it. I'm teaching my kids it. I'm building my whole life on it. I want others to know Jesus lives in my heart. And he's giving me truth and joy and peace. He's helping me to become the kind of a man that Paul was. He's helping me to have the power in the moment of crisis to be like Paul's nephew. God works his will through the little people. That's what I want you to learn today. It says in verse 31, So the soldiers carried out their orders. They took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris, which was about 25 miles from Jerusalem. The next day the cavalry went on and took Paul down to Caesarea. The cavalry, uh, the foot soldiers returned to Lysias in Jerusalem. And verse 34, the governor read the letter and asked what province Paul was from. And learning that he was from Cilicia, he says, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. 
And then he ordered that Paul be kept under his guard in Herod's palace. And that sets us up for the trial that we'll have next week in Caesarea. God used a little boy, and then he used a Roman commander, and he worked it all together to bring Paul by a Roman escort 70 miles from Jerusalem down to Caesarea. And we are 70 miles closer to where God has for Paul to end up in Rome. You know, I believe that God has a lot for us to learn about the fact that Paul was protected by a little boy. And I pray that our church family will always be communicating to our children that God can use them, that God can use the little people. And I trust that none of you big people will ever let Satan convince you that God's plan is so big, God's plan is so mighty, that your little contribution doesn't make any difference, because it does. In this case, God's sovereign plan involved a little, little guy right in a key place in the plan who did the courageous thing, the bold thing, the loving thing, and the great Apostle Paul's life was saved. And I'm sure that when the Apostle Paul got together in heaven with his little nephew, he hugged him like you wouldn't believe. And I'm sure that when Paul's nephew stood before the Lord Jesus after he went home to be with the Lord, that the Lord said, Well done, a good and faithful servant. At a time when you made a choice between self-preservation or self-sacrificial love, you were a little guy who made the big choice to be truthful and loving and even risk your life in courageous bravery to protect your uncle. Because of it, Paul went to Rome and was able to continue to testify. Will we as a church family allow our little people to do the big courageous things that keep God's program going? Let's pray. Father, your word is so practical. It's so realistic. And I would pray that everyone here would have their appetite whetted for how practical and how insightful and how true to life your word can be. We're thankful that your word exposes what we're genuinely like. It doesn't deceive us. It doesn't tell us sweet, glowing stories. It's not just a pillow that gives us comfort. Instead, it's a revelation from your very heart that teaches us about the nature of man, about the natures of our own heart. It teaches us about your Son and the power that he has. And I would ask you, Father, that you will have drawn very near to my precious brothers and sisters. But, Father, the focus of our passage this morning has been on a little believer, a small believer. We don't even know his name, but we thank you for him. And I would ask you, Father, that we would understand that you love to use not the big names, but the no names in order to accomplish your will.